This is the fourth psalm in these 15 psalms of ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. The first 12 psalms are joined together in a triad. The first psalm of each of those four triads is a psalm that expresses difficulty and distress. The second speaks of help and keeping, and the third of security and peace. And the final three psalms, 132, 133, and 134, speak of the arrival in Jerusalem. We've come to the end of the first triad. You had in Psalm 120, distress. You had difficulty. You have Psalm 121, the psalmist seeking the Lord's help, the Lord being his keeper. And Psalm 122 that we considered this morning, the security of Jerusalem and the peace that is to be prayed for. So we come now to the second of these four triads, and we come to this Psalm 123. Being the first psalm and the next three psalms, it speaks of distress and difficulty associated with the journey of the believer through life and earth. It's a short psalm. Like many of these psalms, they are short. And the shortness, though, doesn't mean that there is not food for thought contained within it. There is much food for thought in this in our hearts tonight. The distress the psalmist is experiencing arises because of scorn. And I want to look at this psalm under the following three headings. First, the reality of scorn. Secondly, Scorn faced through prayer. And thirdly, scorn faced with joy. First then, the reality of scorn. Or scorn a reality. In Psalm 120, we saw that the difficulties that came upon the psalmist was because he lived in Meshech, in Kedar, and he did so not in a physical form, but in a mental form. And in that southern region of Kedar, in the desert region, in Machish, up north, and around the Caspian Sea, it was marked by lies and deceit. Here he speaks in this psalm of scorn and contempt. He says in verse 3 that he has had more than enough of contempt. He said, a soul has more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. What's scorn? Well, scorn is derision. It's an expression of someone or something that is worthless in the mind of the person expressing it. It's a disregard of the character. It's a disregard of the personal being of the person. It's to pour as it were, contempt on the person. And you have that throughout Scripture. You have it on many occasions. You have it when they were seeking to rebuild the walls in the time of Nehemiah. And there was this scorn that poured forth from those who came. Some ballot and others who spoke to them. And they did so, and they laughed, and they derided them. 
that scorn, the rebuilding of those physical walls of those believers in the Old Testament wasn't just confined to the Old Testament church. Scorn is very much part and parcel of our lives today. This idea of contempt, treating someone as if they're of no consequence, it's as though they don't exist. It's as if there are nobody. Ridicule has been presented. Scoffing has been declared. And then there's this, I don't care about you because you're not even worth being in my presence. We wonder to ourselves, why is this the case? Why is there such ridiculing of those who know what Jesus Christ and love Him. Why are there such expressions of contempt? Why did those in the Old Testament who sought to do the Lord's work face such opposition? We know that it was driven in that sense by a fear, a jealousy. But why does it continue on today? I mean, if we are so enfeebled as the church sees it, if we're so irrelevant, if we're so insignificant, why even bother exercising scorn? Why even be contemptuous towards us? I mean, why waste your time? If you think something is of no consequence at all, why even give it a thought? The world tells us that we are not even worth space on the face of the earth. You look at the decisions that are made in places of government. You look at when there is uh, opposition to some of the decisions that are made by those who are godly. And what do their contemporaries say to them? It doesn't matter. Your position doesn't matter. You don't carry or garner enough votes or just get past it just get over it. It's just, it's just the way it is. There's no sense in which there's any reasoning. There's no sense in which there's any taking on board of legitimate argumentation. It's not that you have a perspective that might be worth uh, being considered at all. It's just you don't have anything worthwhile to say. You believe in a creator? Well, that shows you where you're from. You believe the world was made in six days? Well, how, you know, that, that's a just utter, absolute and utter nonsense. You not only believe that, but you would teach that to your children? I mean, you're not even worth me talking to. You believe, you actually believe that women should not be given the choice to put to death a child in their woman. I mean, what sensible, credible human being would deny a woman that choice today, in this day and age. You believe, you actually believe that only a man and a woman should be married. That, you, you actually say that. You actually believe that two men who are in love, who have been in love, should not have relationships together and get married. You believe that two kind-hearted women who have shown affection for each other 
are kind to each other, have a close companionship with one another, that they cannot enter into intimate relationships. I mean, what planet are you living on? You believe that people shouldn't have a choice. This is, this is contemptuous that you would actually hold to such a ridiculous position as that. You belong in the 17th or 18th century. You're not part of our modern culture. You have nothing to say to us that's of any merit whatsoever. You should be thankful that we actually give you the space of time. You actually should be thankful that we don't drive you off the face of the earth. It may not go as far as that. But in reality, in reality, if they could put us all on a boat and send us to an unknown island somewhere in the Pacific Ocean and all the people of God could be dumped there, they would do it. They would do it. Because there's sheer and utter contempt for God, His ways, truth and righteousness. Peter speaks in his letter, and he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad with His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of God, Spirit of glory, and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but his, let his glory, let him glorify in that name. There you see is the reason why the psalmist is speaking here of scorn and contempt. He speaks of the reality of it. He tastes it in his everyday life. And he speaks of it because the world is against the truth of God. Since the beginning of time when Adam denied that he would obey God any longer, he has listened to the lies that his father has presented to him. And that lies has communicated a very simple message. God has not said this. God will not do this. And if you live in a world where you believe that God has not said this, and God will not do what God has said he will do, then you can only look upon those who believe that with derision, with scorn and contempt. And why should we be surprised? We shouldn't be surprised at all. We've seen this week in our study in Luke's Gospel and family worship and fellowship groups, how Jesus spoke in Luke's Gospel chapter 16 about the dishonest manager, the man who defrauded his employer, and then having been fired from his employment, he goes along to those who were in debt to his employer, and he discounted 
their bills in order that he might ingratiate himself to them. And his boss said to him that he was to be commended for what he had done. And when we read that, I'm sure that you were surprised. Why would you commend someone who would both first defraud you and then take advantage of that defrauding situation to further defraud you? But as we saw, Jesus in that parable wasn't saying that those who behave like that are shrewd in their actions, but rather they are shrewd in the manner that they think. This man was determined to go after that which he believed was the most important thing in his life. And Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, we are to be shrewd and go after the most important thing that we believe in our lives. We're to be focused and determined on that. And then he went on to speak of the fact that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and mammon. And do you remember how the, the Pharisees responded to that? They ridiculed him. They scorned him. There is Jesus telling them, you cannot serve mammon and you cannot serve God. He's telling these religious men that there isn't a situation where you can sit in the fence and dangle your legs over to serve mammon one day and dangle your legs over to serve God another day. And here were these religious, serious men who knew the law of God in the New Testament church. Well, I say the New Testament church, the New Testament synagogues. And they, because we are told we're lovers of money, laughed at Jesus and ridiculed the very thought of what he was saying. If that had been the worst of it, that would have been culpable with. But we read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, that when Jesus had been tried, by the men in the Jewish council. He was taken before Pontius Pilate. And we read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, that the soldiers led him away inside the palace. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting around a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Heal, King of the Jews. Now, this is our Savior. This is the Son of God. This is the King of kings. This is the one who is ruling in heaven today over all creation. This is the one who is sustaining these men's breath by his creative power. And here are these men. And they are saying to him, Heal, the king of the Jews, having placed on his head this crown of thorns. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Spitting on Jesus. Spitting on him. Kneeling down in homage to him. The Lord Jesus Christ. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes, own clothes on him 
and they led him away to be crucified. There you have scorning. There you have ridicule. There you have scorning and ridicule at its maximum. Well, it wasn't at its maximum. Because there was still more scorning and more contempt. For we read in the same chapter in the 29th verse, that when they had crucified him, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Picking up on that statement that Jesus had made when he'd gone into the, into the temple and he'd wound the three-quartered um, whipped together and he'd driven out those who were in the temple, the money changers. And here he is, the Lord, our Savior, on the cross, dying, taking the penalty due to his people for their sin, following mock trials, trials that had brought before them witnesses who had perjured themselves, held at illegal times, working together the Jews and the Romans who had contempt for each other but combined in the events that led up to this hour. And there he is, having been nailed to the cross. And that cross had been placed in the ground. And what are they saying? What are they doing? How are they addressing him? They're no longer saying aha and mocking him. Now they're, they are mocking him in the sense of you said you would rebuild the temple in three days. And now look at you. You pathetic piece of a human being. Nailed there to the cursed, the cursed cross of God. You said you were a religious man. Do you not, have you not even read your Bible? Do you not even know that in the Old Testament it says, Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And there you are. You're telling us that you would destroy the temple and raise it. And you would bring it up again, build it in three days. What sort of statement is that would have come out of your mouth? Do you remember the day you said that? You went in and you cleared the temple. You thought you were the big boy, didn't you? Because you had a whip in your hand. And there you are. Look at you now. You can't even keep your life. You can't even sustain your life. Aha. Aha. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. As if you ever had the strength to do anything like that. As if you would ever have the power to think you could bring yourself off that cross. What scorn, what contempt, what ridicule. Is it any surprise to us that we who hold his name would be scorned and ridiculed? And as the psalmist says in Psalm 69, he was scorned because he obeyed his father. He obeyed his father. And we who would seek to obey our Father in heaven, we should not be surprised at the scorn. 
And this scorn, this scorn that comes to us is a scorn that is a never-ending reality. The psalmist speaks in verse 4 and he speaks of it as something that is being stored up. He says, we've had enough of contempt. He says, a soul has had, had, had more than enough of scorn. It's as though his daily diet is one of scorn. It's as though the only food that he has been presented is scorn. It's as though he is just constantly being held with a contemptuous view It's as though every time he speaks, they're laughing at him. They're ridiculing him. They're saying he is of no consequence. And those who are doing it, they're doing it so at their ease. At their ease, they're doing it. Those who turn a blind eye to evil are the ones who are scorning the holy and the righteous and the godly. Those who scorn the Lord Jesus at Calvary in His holiness, in His beauty, even on the cross, when He was being disfigured by the wrath of God being poured upon Him. It was the evil. It was those who would turn themselves away from God. Those who cried out, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us the terrorist. Give us the destroyer. Give us the zealot. Give us the one who does things that murders the innocent and we will support him rather than this godly man who you, Pontius Pilate, have washed your hands of because you see no fault in him. It's the evil. So it's not, it's not something that just comes occasionally. It's not something that just hits and then is gone. It's a scorn and a contempt that is hard. Because we are seeking to walk in the ways of righteousness. And it's the godless and the unrighteous who are pouring their scorn. It's we who would seek to save the preborn. It's we who would seek to say to men and women, you're pouring judgment upon yourself and to do so with love. And they who know God is real. They who know God is true because it's clear, as Paul says in the letter to the Romans, as clear as as the noses on their faces, they're the ones that are pouring scorn on us. We're the ones that are telling them in love, your ways are taking you to a lost eternity. You're, You're being bound to a broad road that will end in your eternal separation from God, a place of terrible and just punishment, a place of agonizing pain. And we're telling them the reality of the truth of what God has revealed. And they look at us and they say to us, what nonsense. What utter nonsense. What utter nonsense. And there we are seeking to show love. We're seeking to lead them and guide them and help them. We're the ones that will put our arms around them when days of trouble. And then when they've got themselves out of whatever trouble they're in, they'll turn around within a day or two and laugh again with somebody in the office laughs. Have you ever had that experience? You've reached out to someone who you know and you've held them in your, in your arms metaphorically and you've provided care for them and you've helped them out of a difficult situation and then a few days later you overhear a conversation they're having with someone else 
and they're laughing at you. And you wonder to yourself, is that really what you think of me? When nobody else was there for you, when nobody else was reaching out for you, when nobody else jumped in the car and took you to that which you needed, when nobody else had an expression of love, you received that. And yet here you are, back with your friends, and all you can verbalize is contempt for my love. Contempt for my giving to you out of a heart that is led by Christ. And it never ends. It never ends. If you seek to do the Lord's work in your life with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will get a belly full of scorn all the time. And what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, we're to face scorn with prayer. The psalmist says in verse 100, or verse 1, sorry, of Psalm 123, that he lifts up his eyes. He lifts up his eyes. And as he lifts up his eyes, he leads others to lift up their eyes. To you I lift up my eyes. And then he says in verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the, the, the hand of their masters, and he speaks in the end of verse 2, So our eyes look to the Lord our God, as he as an individual lifts up his eyes, so he encourages others among whom he is gathered with as he's walking up in this journey, as it were, to the land of peace and security. He encourages others by the words that he says. You see how, how good a thing it is to encourage one another on to good deeds. To good deeds. And why does he lift up his eyes? Well, he lifts up his eyes because there's direction to be received. The analogy is given of the servant who looks up to the master, male servant and female servant. The orders don't need to be given. The manservant or the male servant just needs to look at a wee, a wee lift of the finger from the, from the master and they know what has to be done. No verbal communications required. The servant is there to serve. The servant knows the character of the master. The female maidservant knows the character of the mistress. They know what is required of them. And so they lift up their eyes. They don't need to hear. They just need to be able to see. And so as they see they received direction. And so as we would lift up our eyes to behold our Master, as we would lift up our eyes to behold God sovereignly ruling in His glory, as we would lift up our eyes to behold Him in all His majesty and power, whether male or female, as we would look for Him to lead and give direction, albeit through His Word. That's why we're to pray. That's why we're not to speak. That's why we're not to ridicule in response to the scorning and the contempt. You see, because there's something going on when there's a scorn and a contempt that's being expressed. And we need to understand what it is. 
To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. He has a a belly full of contempt. His soul has had more than enough of the scorn from those who are at ease, from those who are proud. And he doesn't weigh in and pour forth what he thinks. He looks to the Father for direction. And in looking for direction, he knows that he received mercy. The Lord who is his covenant God will afford him mercy. He says in verse 3, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me. And he's seeking that mercy because he knows that that mercy will come. He's not just praying aimlessly. He's not looking to the sovereign Father, the one who's enthroned without any anticipation or expectation. No, he expects God to be merciful to him. As, this, as Moses experienced in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Have mercy on me, is the plea of verse 2. Have mercy upon us, is the call of verse 3. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jehovah, is the plea. And so we pray because we want God to be merciful. We want God to not treat us and allow us to be treated by these ones that live in arrogance and pride and ease. And we know that they will not stop of their own volition. There was none of the mockers that night when Jesus was being was sitting on that on that chair, on that stool, and they were placing the crown of thorns in his head, and they were putting that royal purple robe around him, and giving him that scepter, and they were spitting in his face. There was none of them as they were mocking, bowing down, and paying homage to him. There was nobody said, this is enough, this is too much. This isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. This man has not had a case proven against him. The world will not intervene at any point and say enough. Enough of the scorning. Enough of the contempt. When they were on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, and they were saying, Aha! Three days He said He would rip down the temple and then rebuild it. Come down from the cross now if you can see it. Nobody said, Enough! Stop this! Jesus said, their Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The world won't intervene and stop itself. You won't hear the world saying of the church, well, they have a reasonable argument when it comes to their pre-born. Let them hold their position on marriage. Let them hold their position on gender issues. Let them hold their issue on sexual relationships. Let the church hold this. It's a viable position. It's a worthwhile position. We're a liberal culture. Let us give them the liberality of holding their position. I learned as a very, very young minister, it was in the first few months of my ministry in Scotland, I went along to a minister's fraternal. There was ministers there and a few Roman Catholic priests from the town. 
I quickly realized that this was not a company that I was going to be welcomed in. And I didn't do anything at all to make an issue. I just was present. I just listened. And when they asked me my view, I would give my position. And there came to an event. And I made a suggestion about the event that would have focused on the Word of God. And they very quickly made it clear to me that anything that I would say in their midst had no merit at all, especially if I was going to bring God into the equation. And not one of those men ordained to the ministry of the gospel of word and prayer not one of them said, leave the young man alone. He's only starting out in this job. Give him a chance. When the Church of Scotland minister looked at me and said, this is not what we hold in here, they were all nodding in support. I had an early baptism in the reality of what it means to stand for Christ in a community where even those who say they believe in Jesus despised Him. There's not much can frighten me now. The world won't step in. If we're waiting for the world to step in and self-calibrate and self-regulate and self-police, it won't do it. We have to turn to God and we have to say, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Three times He pleads for mercy lifting up his eyes and asking for mercy. And note his willingness to wait. The end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. Till He has mercy upon us. We have to be prepared to wait. It won't happen immediately. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, well, it may, but it often doesn't happen immediately. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Remember the, the parable of the persistent widow? Jesus speaks about this widow in chapter Luke chapter 18. There was a certain city where there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And a widow kept coming to him, saying to him, Give me justice against my adversary. While he, refu she refu he refused, but she kept saying and coming and pleading. And he eventually gave in. She persisted in praying. And so this belly full of scorn, this belly full of contempt that we experience as we're walking in this journey to the glory we have to lift up our eyes to God. We have to plead with God for mercy. We have to ask Him for direction. We have to ask Him for counsel. We have to seek His guidance. And we have to do so pleading with Him for mercy as we do so. But we have to understand that we have to wait on that. We have to wait on it. It won't happen just like that. It may take years of asking and asking, and asking, and asking, and asking, and asking. This journey is not easy. In Psalm 120, we saw that the lies are real. The violence is tangible. 
And the scorn is biting here in Psalm 123. We've got to learn to lift up our eyes and to plead for mercy and to do so with patience and perseverance. Finally, in a sentence, it's to be experienced with joy. Well, how perverse is that? How can, you, how can you actually say that? After you've been preaching for 30 minutes, you come out and say how bad it is. We have to look to the eyes. We have to look. We have to look to God. We have to ask for mercy and we have to endure it with patience. How can you actually give us a final heading of a sermon that we're to face it with joy? Well, I do so because the one who was scorned and ridiculed the Lord Jesus Christ, we read in verse chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him enjoyed, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do we look at it with joy in the sense of happiness? Do we say, ridicule us all you want? Laugh at us as much as you desire. Have all the contempt in the world you want for us. Is that how we... No. It's not talking about happy circumstantial joy. It's talking about the joy of knowing what's happening, what's coming at the end. It's the joy of knowing that we are going to be with Christ seated in the heavenly realms. A present reality? Yes a future glorious prospect still to be revealed. How can we take the scorn and the glory and endure by simply lifting up our eyes and asking God for mercy? We can do it because for the joy set before us of the glory in the presence of Christ for all eternity, we can say you can shame us all you want. And we will look upon that and take that with joy because that is identifying us with the one you spat on. That's identifying us with the one you put the crown of thorns on. That's identifying us with the one that you mocked. That's identifying us with the one that you said, come down from the cross if you can. Our scorn is because of Christ. The contemptuous attitude is because of our love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We endure with joy because we love Him. We love Him. We love Him. We love Him. He is the King enthroned. He is the one who hears our pleading. He is the one who pleads in our behalf before the Father. He is the one who sent the Spirit to be our helper, our paraclete, to walk beside us, to hear the scorning, to hear the contempt. And He walks with us. And He knows. He knows the magnitude of what it is to be scorned and contempted. And do we not thank God tonight that we'll never experience what He experienced? 
Never. Even if they were to take us and put a crown of thorns on our head, even if they were to put a royal robe on us, even if they were to mock us, even if they were to revile us, even if they were to crucify us, it would not stand in the same status as him. Because although perfect, he was the eternal son of God. And the mocking and the shame that was laid on him is of far, 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 far greater magnitude than anything you or I will ever experience. Lift up your eyes and see the one who's enthroned. Plead for mercy and wait till he gives you it in the knowledge that he loves you. He loves you. And he will draw you to be with himself for all eternity. And in that eternity, you will not remember one day of the scorning and contempt that you experience should be so taken up with the beauty of his character and the beauty of his being. You'll never once look and think, was this worth it? Let's pray.